And I want to preach to you on this thought, the way back. I'm sure glad there's a way back, aren't you? All right, John chapter 21, verse number 1. The Word of God says that after these things, Jesus showed Himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And on this wise showed Himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were, two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fishes. As soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon and bread. Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes, and hundred and fifty and three. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken." Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved, because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this evening, humbled at the privilege and opportunity is to be in your house. Lord, let not the fatigue that no doubt many of us are feeling and the distractions that seek to crowd in and, Lord, the temptations to uh, train our mind on the things of the world, let none of those things rob Christ of the glory and honor that He's due this evening. And, Lord, let none of these things rob us of the opportunity to hear from heaven. Pray that you'd help us to have our hearts trained upon thee tonight. And, Lord, our minds open to the truth of the word of God. 
There's been many requests that have been mentioned this evening, Lord, and some of them we might uh, be tempted to call big and some we might be tempted to call small, but relative to your might and your infinite power, there's none of them that daunts you. There's none of them that wearies you. But, Lord, you are interested in every single one of them, and we thank you for the graciousness of your nature in that respect. So we ask you, Lord, to tend to these needs, to minister to these needs in our life. And, Lord, we say minister because we endeavor that we might grow in faith faith as we see what you do in these matters. I pray that you'd be with those facing health challenges. I pray that you would be with those that are facing financial hurdles and Lord, those that are facing family issues. And Lord, you just know every one of these needs. And let me just lift my voice in praise tonight and thank you for knowing these needs, even when we often ourselves do not know what we have need of. Pray that you'd answer these things according to your will and that in everything that happens tonight, Christ would receive glory. Father, we love you and we ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen. This, I think, is a familiar passage of Scripture to most of us in this room. I think this is a tender passage of Scripture. It is a passage of Scripture upon which you don't have to plow deep to draw important and meaningful truth. But when we come to this passage of Scripture, I think there is a temptation to dismiss the condition that Peter is in when we find him here. We know that the the Peter over in Luke chapter number 24, we know about him, that messed up individual that sat beside the fires of denial and cursed the name of the Lord Jesus. And I think that very often we associate that individual with the lost portion of our life and the time of our life when we were alienated from God. We associate that with our darkest moments. But you know, if I'm being honest tonight, I think if I was to be realistic, I would say that the Peter we find in John chapter 21 looks a lot more like Toby Weber on more often occasions than the one in Luke chapter 24. In other words, when I come to the situation that Peter is in here, I can more readily see where I find myself in my spiritual walk than very often we even do as he's sitting beside the fires of denial. Peter, when I think about him here, I notice three things. And I think understanding these are key to understanding what transpires on this night at the Sea of Galilee. Notice number one, I can't help but imagine that Peter was probably disoriented as regards the course of his life. Now, when you lay out and study the the post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus... What you find is it was some 40 days until Pentecost takes place from the resurrection uh, to uh, when he ascended up to heaven. And the Lord Jesus, if I read my Bible carefully here, it tells me that this was only the third time that he had appeared to his disciples. Now, I trust that this is accepting those miraculous appearances immediately in the uh, shadow of the tomb when he appeared to Mary Magdalene and the women and uh, when he gave instruction for Uh, the women to go and tell the disciples that he was risen from the dead and were even told that he met his disciples on that day and that occasion. But I can find at least three times in John's gospel, this being the third, when the Lord appears to his disciples. He uh, transfers himself through locked door when they're gathered in the upper room, huddled in fear of the Roman soldiers, and appears unto them, and Thomas is not there. Then a few days later, he appears to them again with Thomas in their presence. And that's the familiar passage in the chapter before, whenever Thomas uh, looks at him and says, my Lord and my God. We don't know how much time passed between that moment and this moment. 
I think it is a safe assumption that the disciples probably didn't just live indefinitely in the upper room. And so probably those first two occasions happened pretty close to each other and probably pretty close to the resurrection. But we do not know how much time had passed. All we know is it was enough time for Peter to give up and go back to his old life. Now, what must have led to that? Now, I don't know about you, but I'm trying to put myself in Peter's shoes here. And don't you imagine, you know, it's one thing to wait a few days, maybe one thing to wait a week or two, but three, four, five weeks begin to pass by and you're going to eventually start to ask, what next? They did not have any instructions uh, they had been told to go and preach the gospel ever, or they would be told to go and preach the gospel to every creature. But at this moment, at this occasion, they're in what we might call a holding pattern. You ever feel like you're in a holding pattern? I don't know about you, but I think for the past four months, I've felt like I'm in a holding pattern. And Peter, he no doubt felt like he was in a holding pattern, and he began to ask this question. I, I, I have to, I have to imagine he began to ask himself, what do I do next? Where do I turn now? I don't believe he had a real firm grasp of what this thing called the church would be. Christ had mentioned it. Christ had hinted at it. Christ had said that it would be upon Himself, meaning upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that He would build His church. And He drew a connection between uh, Peter and Himself and the role that Peter would play in the New Testament church. But He didn't really say a lot about it. Probably Peter is left feeling like he's in a holding place and a holding pattern. And he probably just started wondering what God was doing, taking so much time letting him know when things were going to get better. Can I tell you something? It's a dangerous thing to grow impatient on God. We all do. I don't know a single person that's born again by the grace of God that does not sometimes get impatient. Can I remind you of this? Listen, God is never late, but His clock does not look like your clock. His watch does not run like your watch runs. He is always on time in what He does. But we need to be careful because sometimes we will get ahead of God and begin to be wondering, when's God going to do this or do that or change this or change that? And it will breed discouragement or discontentment in our lives. I think he was disoriented, and I think what that led to was some discouragement. Now, I think it's apparent from this text he was discouraged. He probably, again, and you, you forgive me if I'm using some imagination. Let's hope it's sanctified imagination tonight. But I would just sort of imagine a fellow in Peter's condition that doesn't understand what's going on. He doesn't know why God's not telling him what to do. And he doesn't know when things are going to start, quote unquote. He probably got discouraged, maybe thinking something like this. You know, maybe I messed up too much. The Lord had sent particular word by way of the women after his resurrection to tell Peter that the risen Lord awaited him in Galilee. But maybe, you know, and I found this to be true in my life. You may be more spiritual than me, but oftentimes God will do amazing things to love on me and to show me attention. But you give it a week or two and I can't even remember those things that God did anymore. Maybe he got to thinking, you know, maybe I messed up too much. When I sat around that fire, denied my Lord. Maybe there is no going back to the way it was before. And probably he just grew discouraged. I think that's why we find him. Because of this third truth, we see Peter was disoriented and discouraging. And because of that, we see Peter was deserting the calling of God on his life. Just a few short words. But he says, I go fishing. Now, I don't think it's wrong for a man to go fishing. I'm a little jealous of those that have time to, but... I don't think it's wrong to go fishing. I wish I could go fishing more. But the type of fishing they were doing was not enjoyable fishing. They were fishing with a net. 
They weren't out there trying to hone in and drop a fly right on top of a brown trout. (laughs) They were hauling nets. That was hard work. This was commercial fishing. What were they doing, Brother Ken, doing commercial fishing? When Peter said, I go a fishing, what exactly did he mean? He meant, I'm done with this. And I'm going back to what I was before. I don't believe it's a sin for a man to be a fisherman. I don't believe it's a sin for a man to be a professional fisherman. But I do think it's a sin for a man once God has called him to a higher plane of responsibility and purpose to try to go back to how things were the way before. I'm saying this, that he was trying to walk away from the life and calling that God had placed upon him. A, a discouraged man, a confused man, a man that was tired of waiting around on God to do something that he thought God should hurry up about, and a man that no doubt was embarrassed and ashamed at the mistakes that he made and felt like there was no place left in the plan of God for a man like him. That's who we find in John chapter 21. I find I've been there at times in my life, and you probably have too to some greater or lesser degree. I'll tell you what I would have probably done if I was the Lord. I would have said, Peter, you can either suck it up and get back to work or you can just hit the bricks. But I'm glad the Lord's more gracious than I am because that's not what the Lord does. He does not leave him to pout in his current condition. By the way, let me say this. This isn't my message, but I'm going to say it. You notice when he went a fishing, others went with him. Man, when you quit, there'll always be some that quit with you. When you, when you, when you go back, there'll always be some that go back with you. There are people watching you and me and waiting for an excuse to give up on God. And heaven help us to never be that excuse. I'm not saying that's the only reason to go on and serve God, but I'm saying it's one of them. And it shouldn't be the only. We ought to serve Him because of Him. But I'm just telling you, and this is true not only of those of us that are raising children, but all of us who have people in our life that they measure what Christianity looks like by looking at us. And if we quit... They'll quit. How many times you heard the testimony of somebody under deep conviction that was waiting for somebody else to go to an altar before they went to an altar? That thing works both ways. Very often there's people right on the edge. You know what this whole experience has has shown over the past few months? It's shown that a lot of us were right on the edge and people didn't know it. There's people right on the edge, just waiting. I mean, they're like they're like Eutychus. They're just sitting up there, just waiting to fall out the window. And all they need is the breeze from you slamming the door behind you, and it'll push them right out. I see that there were some went fishing with him, but the Lord does not leave him in that condition. Instead, the Lord approaches him. Verse number three is one of the most deeply personal, applicable verses to my life, because it says that they fished all night and caught nothing. And I know what that's like. <laughs> they go, they enter into a ship immediately. And isn't it funny? It's like they were beating a path to get to get out the door. They didn't want to hang around the upper room. They didn't want Jesus to come walking in the door and spoil their plan to give up. They got out in a hurry. They went and got in a ship immediately. And that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore. I'm glad he's standing on the shore. Aren't you? He wasn't standing way back on a mountain. He could have been and still did everything that he did. Uh, His divine, perfect voice could have floated over the hills and valleys and made its way right into the ears of those apostles. But instead, he stood on the shore. You know why? I think he wanted them to see that he was waiting for them. I'm glad he's standing on the shore. The Bible says the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Now, before I get, I've got three thoughts. I'll tell you, I've got three thoughts. I'm going to share them with you and be done tonight. 
But what I see in this passage is basically three scenes. There is a scene that transpires when Jesus is at the shore and they are in the boat that relates to the fishes. Then there is a scene that transpires as they sit around the campfire and eat the fish that both Peter caught and that which the Lord had provided. And I'll tell you why I think both types of fish were there before we're done. And then there's this deeply intimate conversation between the Lord Jesus and Simon Peter. And I think in these three scenes, we have laid out for us the way back. When we find ourselves where Peter was at, and we're trying to figure out the way back, I think if we'll do what Peter did, I think we'll find the way back. So notice number one with me tonight. There had to be confession and obedience. That's what the first scene is all about. When they're out in the boat and their nets are empty and the Lord Jesus cries out to them and says, Children, have ye any meat? He's asking them a question. Now, if you've been around here any amount of time, you've heard me say this. The Lord only asks rhetorical questions. An omniscient God can only ask rhetorical questions. He already knows the answer to everything he's about to ask. So the reason you ask a rhetorical question is not for your own benefit for knowledge, but rather uh, for an emphasis or an impression upon the person you are asking or those that are within earshot. So here's another one of these rhetorical uh, rhetorical questions. And what does he ask? He says, children, have ye any meat? So what's he trying to get from them, Brother Ken? I think he's trying to get a confession from them. Can I tell you, if you're ever going to get back, you've got to admit that you're not where you need to be in the first place. If you're ever going to get back, you've got to admit that you went astray in the first place. And the first step in this, listen carefully, what does he want them to confess to? He wants them to confess to empty nets. Have you got any meat? Well, now, what does he mean? He ain't talking about pork belly. He's not talking about ham hocks. He's not talking about drumsticks. He's saying, have you caught any fish? Since you've been out. Stop and think about that question. You could ask that to any fisherman. It's a common question, in fact. That's one of the first things. If you're ever out near any body of water whatsoever with a fishing rod in your hands and you walk by someone, they'll say something like this. Did you get any bites? Did you catch anything? How'd you do today? It's a common question. But when God asks this question of Peter, you've got to remember this is not mere idle curiosity. He already knows the answer. He knows they didn't catch anything. In fact, I'd say this, before ever a fish was ever called forth into the sea by the creative voice of God, God knew on this night he would not catch anything. But he wants Peter to admit that that night had been futile and fruitless. You see, here was the real question. Had Peter's desertion and disobedience been productive? Now, Peter was a pretty good fisherman, I trust, Although most of the time when you see him fishing in the Bible, he's not catching more often than he is catching. At least when he's fishing for fish as opposed to fishing for men. But a man could not live in his day unless he was somewhat skilled at what he was doing. But on this night he had caught nothing and he's wanting to show him this. Peter, there's no going back to that. Ten years ago, Peter, you might could have gone out and fished this sea and come back with your hull bursting. Something changed that day when you walked away from those nets by the Sea of Galilee three years ago. And now there's no going back to that old lifestyle. He's wanting to show him that his abandonment of God's calling had brought him nothing that satisfied. All it brought him was wasted time and empty nets. 
You know why a lot of people can't get out of the life that they're stuck in? It's because they really don't want rid of it in the first place. You've got to be done with it. You've got to look at that disobedience and see nothing but a wasted night and an empty net before you'll walk away from it. Peter was ready to. Sadly, a lot of folks aren't. I know there's times in my life, and, and I'll just go ahead and, 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 and just be human in front of you. There's times in my life when I've sinned and, and now me and God are in this thing of playing chicken where I know, I know I can't keep living like this. I know I can't keep living with my heart in rebellion. I know I can't keep living with unconfessed sin. I know sooner or later I'm gonna ask God to forgive me. And God knows that sooner or later He's gonna, I'm gonna ask Him to forgive me. And God knows He's not gonna let me rest until that thing gets dealt with. But for whatever reason, I'm like old Pharaoh of old. I wanna spend one more night with the frogs crawling all over me there in the land of Egypt. For whatever reason, my stubbornness, my willfulness, I'm unwilling to confess to an empty net. But the first step, if you're going to get right, is you've got to make that confession. They had to confess to empty nets. Look down at verse 6. The Lord Jesus said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Can I tell you something I've learned in my life? There are no fish that live in Norris Lake. There aren't. You know how I know that? Because I can't catch any. I've never done well fishing on Norris Lake. There's fish lives in the Clinch River. There's fish fish that lives uh, on on Douglas Lake. There's fish lives at Cherokee. I've, but I go to Norris. I can't, and that just tells me there are, but Larry, there's no fish in Norris because I can't catch any. Now there's another alternative, right? I might just not know what I'm doing. I might be a bad fisherman. It's possible if somebody else came along and said. Hey, let me show you what you're doing wrong and you'll start catching fish. It's possible that could change for me. But you know what I'm going to have to do? I'm going to have to admit that I don't know everything and I don't have it all figured out and I don't have the right way. Here's what I'm going to have to confess to. Not only empty nets, but I'm going to have to confess to inferior knowledge. I'm going to have to admit that I am not the best fisherman out there. The only, the only, the only similarity between me and Bill Dance is how much we fall over. That's it. I, you don't know who Bill Dance is. That's all right. Charlie does. <laughs> That's the only similarity. At the end of the day, I have no not, I have to rely on the knowledge of another person. You see, when the Lord Jesus tells them to cast the net on the right side of the ship, here's what Peter could have done. He could have said, I'm going to waste my time doing that. There ain't no fish out here. If there's fish out here, I would have caught them. But in this moment, he has a choice whether to rely upon himself or to rely upon the wisdom and instruction of God. And he chooses to do what God says. You see, that's what obedience is. Obedience is admitting you don't got it figured out. Obedience is admitting, is admitting God knows more than you know. That's why obedience is so essential to getting your heart and life right. You're not trying to earn God's forgiveness through your willingness to obey. No, it's a part of the breaking of the will, the acknowledging and admitting that you're not doing it the right way and you don't know the right way. By obedience to Christ's command, Peter, a lifelong professional fisherman, was admitting that he couldn't catch the fish on his own. And he was admitting that the Lord knew more than he knew. Listen, if you're going to get right, you're, you're going to have to admit that God knows what getting right looks like and God knows how you need to get right and God knows what it'll take for you to get right. You know what that's called? That's called obedience. That's called instead of second-guessing God and saying, well, Lord, I know you said I need to do A, B, or C, but I really don't want to and I'd love to keep this element of my sin or this element of my disobedience. Instead saying, Lord, if this is what you say it takes, then I'll do it. 
because you know better than I do. Look down at verse 6. Unusual verse, but I believe we can unriddle it. Verse 7 says this, Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked. I don't think that means he was stark naked. I think what it means is that he was wearing his his linen clothes or what he would typically sleep in. He had taken his outer garment off and was wearing only that which was most comfortable and that which he could relax, that which he could sleep in. The Bible says he did cast himself into the sea. Now there's a lot of different opinions about what Peter was trying to do. In this passage, I've heard some, in fact, my late father-in-law used to believe that Peter was trying to commit suicide, that a fisher's coat he wouldn't have been able to swim in, and so he was trying to commit suicide. I, I don't believe that for this simple reason. I think if he was trying to drown, he would have never made it to the shore. Uh, typically, folks that want to kill themselves do. And I think if he had wanted to drown, he would have drowned. I think he didn't make it 200 cubits from where he was at to the shore except by swimming. And I think he probably wanted to get there. So then that leaves us with this understanding. If Peter wasn't doing what he was doing because he wanted to kill himself, if he wasn't doing what he was doing because he was wanting to hide, because if he was wanting to hide, he would have swam away from shore and not too shore. That that sort of leaves us with only one conclusion, right? He jumped out of the boat because he wanted to get to the shore. Now, why did he want to get there? Well, he didn't jump out until John looks at him and says, It is the Lord. And John even makes sure we understand that it was when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord that he girded his fisher's coat unto him. Here's what I would say. I'd say Peter did not wait for others to carry him closer to Christ. He didn't want to spend one more moment away from the Lord. He did whatever it took to get back into his presence. (laughs) Now you might think it's silly for a man to jump out of a boat and swim to shore. But if you're Peter and it's just dawned on you what you've done and how you've been living and you can in some way get to Christ sooner. See, here's what I'm saying. We might look at it and say that it's silly. I look at it and say we need more of that. We need more of that desperation, Brother Ken, to get in his presence. More of that desperation to be closer unto him. I think we have to confess to an immediate need if you're keeping up with the notes. An immediate need. In other words, he didn't say, well, I'll put it off and I'll get to it when I can. He didn't say, you know, this boat is headed in that direction anyway. Now, you know, there's young people that have that mindset. They got sin in their life and they say to themselves, well, sooner or later, I'm going to be too old to have fun anyway. Then I'll quit doing this. I think he was saying this. I'm not going to wait for somebody else to get me there. Can I give you an illustration of maybe some way that we might use this sentiment in a modern service? You've heard me say it probably every church service you've sat in. You don't have to wait for the first note to be played. Now, that's not because I think this altar is going to burn up before you get here. It's for this simple reason. I've seen too many people wait and wait and wait and wait for the perfect moment. And you know what comes before the perfect moment does? The last amen. And they walk out the back door with unfinished business with God. You know what it takes to get back to where we were? We have to admit that we can't wait any longer. It's got to be dealt with now. It can't be put off. We can't give a place to the devil. We can't give occasion to the flesh. It's got to be dealt with now. Peter said, if I've got to swim to get to him, I'll do whatever it takes. So I think confession and obedience. And then there's a second scene. So Peter arrives on the seashore and he finds that there is a fire there. Now, that might seem welcoming to you and me. 
We might think, well, here he is, uh, you know, soaked to the bone and been out all night. We have no reason to believe it was a nice time, nice part of the year. It's it's entirely nobody else jumped out and swam behind him. It's entirely possible that it's a a colder time and the water was cold. And and you or I, we might think, you know, if I got there and I saw here's Jesus and 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 he's got a campfire and he's got he's got fried fish and cornbread and all this different stuff. We we might think, man, that'd look wonderful. I don't think it looked that way to Peter. Now, you might disagree with what I'm about to say, but let me go ahead and tell it to you this way. You know what step number two is? Communion and fellowship. We've got to spend time with Him. And you know the first thing I see when I read through here? I see a familiar scene. Now, it might not be familiar to you or me, but I guarantee it was to Peter. I guarantee when he looked and saw that campfire, his mind immediately went back where it all fell to pieces. Now, that might be cause for discouragement on the surface. We might think how cruel that is of Jesus to, to bring him to this place and to throw this scene back in front of him for him to have to relive sitting around a campfire and lock eyes once again with the Lord Jesus, only now he'll not be afar, but he'll be right across the flames from him. How cruel that is, but I don't see it that way. You know what I think was being spoken by this? Here's what I think the Lord was saying. That the way out was the way back in. In other words, the way that you took out, the same door that you left by, is the same one you can come back in by. I think that simplifies things, don't you? Why did Peter get out in the first place? Because he followed afar. He let that fellowship cool off for the kin. And pretty soon he started to warm his hands by somebody else's fire. And pretty soon they asked things of him and demanded things of him that he would have never thought of doing before. And now the Lord Jesus brings him back to this place. And here is the simple, blissful truth. Jesus says, come sit by my fire, Peter, and I'll make everything the way that it needs to be. (laughs) I'm glad to know if we'll just spend a little time with him that he can sort everything out. I see the familiar scene. I see the fish supper that was taking place. Maybe I'm just hungry when I was preparing this. I don't know. The Bible says in verse 10, Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fishes which ye have now caught. Simon Peter went up, drew the net to land, full of great fishes, an hundred and fifty and three. Now you might have an opinion of what that number means, and I might have an opinion of that number, and uh, we both might be wrong. God might have a different opinion about what that means. Really don't know, just to be frank with you. I could give you reasons. They wouldn't be worth much, but... The Bible says this, and for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Now there's a lot we could say about that. This scene looks a lot like the first night that the, that Peter came to really know the Lord Jesus. He had known him sort of, uh, of socially prior. In fact, the Bible tells us one of the first occasions we really find Peter and the Lord interacting deeply was whenever the Lord healed Peter's mother-in-law. And it would seem from the text of Scripture that that was prior to Peter being called to be a disciple or called to be an apostle. But that first occasion when they really interacted was when there at that same sea, the Lord Jesus asked to borrow Peter's boat so that he could teach the people a little distance off from shore. And you remember that he then he, he then takes a, a, a personal tutorial with Peter. He takes him out into the deep and tells him to lower down his nets and he catches a great drought of fishes. And the Bible tells us on that occasion that the net broke, but here the net did not break. And we could probably make application to all those things. But I have a very simple question I want to ask you tonight. 
Why did Jesus have him bring fish? Now, wait a minute. Somebody's going to say, well, because Jesus had fish for himself, but he didn't have fish for all them. You might be right about that. Here's the next question I have for you. If Jesus could get fish for him, don't you think he could get fish for them too? It's not as though he didn't expect them. He knew they'd be there. So the Lord Jesus deliberately commands Peter to bring the fish that he's caught and to come sit by the campfire. Now stop and think about that. He doesn't want them to bring fish for him to eat, but he does want them to bring fish for them to eat. So that teaches us two things. One, it tells us that Jesus didn't need their fish. He already had fish. So he wants you to come sit down by the fire, but it's not because he needs you there. But he does allow you to bring your fish and throw them on the campfire. Now, what were those fish? Well, that was a picture of Peter's investment and his energy. I mean, the Bible's very clear that this net was full of 153 fishes, whatever significance that bears, and that it was very great, and that it took all the strength that Peter had. Peter may have not been the one to caught the fish, really. The Lord did, but he was certainly the one that dragged it up there to the campfire. So here's what I find. Their fish, which is sort of associated with their time, their investment, their energy, were requested, but not for Jesus' benefit, for their benefit. You know what it tells me? It tells me that I bring my fish to his campfire, not because he needs me to, but because I need to. I'm going there not to feed him. I'm going there so I can get fed. And in as much as I'm investing my time and my energy to pray and to spend time with God and to read my Bible and to fellowship with Him, I'm doing it not because He needs me to do it so that He has somebody to spend time with. I'm doing it because I need to spend time with Him. I see the fish suffer. Look at verse 12 and 13. i got to hurry, but look what it says. Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them and fish likewise. Look down to verse verse 15. Well, we'll read verse 14 too. It says, This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. Now here's what it looks like to me, and you can disagree with this. Feel free to do so. But it looks like they probably sat there in quiet and ate. I mean, the Bible says nobody asked him who he was because they knew who he was. And we have no record of dialogue between verse number 12 and verse number 15 when it explicitly said, so when they had dined, meaning when they were done eating, Jesus turns and begins to talk to Peter. But we don't have any record of any dinner conversation going on. Now, you might assume there is conversation or I might assume there is conversation, but I think there's significance to the focused silence that's taking place. I want to be very careful with what I say. I don't want to get into mysticism and any of that contemplative prayer nonsense that's straight out of hell. That's not what I'm talking about. But can I just make an observation here? Peter didn't have to speak. His sin had already been dealt with earlier. He had confessed his sin. He had confessed his brokenness. He had had some undoubtedly conversation with the Lord uh, on one of those two prior occasions. He had gotten things in the right condition. And as it relates to his desertion in John chapter 21, he had admitted, confessed it had been to no avail. He had swam back. He had already dealt with that. 
And now merely spending time in fellowship with the Lord had a restorative effect. Let me be careful with what I'm about to say. I'm not saying you don't have to confess your sin to him and ask forgiveness. John chapter 1 tells us that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm not saying you don't have to confess your sin, but I am saying you don't have to confess your sin and 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 confess your sin, the same sin. In other words, after it had been talked about, it was put away. I'm glad to know that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And can I tell you what it may be that it takes to get you back to where you were before is not for you to retread the same tires over and over and over and over and over again, but instead to just spend a little time in His presence. You may find out that what is lacking is not that you have not dealt with that sin. Now, if you've not dealt with it, it needs to be dealt with. But if you've dealt with it and you feel like, man, things just still ain't the way they were, it could be because of how much time you spent away from Him. And the only remedy is going to be a little time spent with Him. I see the focus silence. And then I see number three, and I'm just going to mention these and be done. What's step number three? Well, step number one is confession and obedience. Got to admit what we've done and ask God to forgive us. Step number two is communion and fellowship. We've got to spend time with Him. The the way out is the way back in. We got out because we wasn't spending time with Him. We get back in by spending time with Him. But here's what step three is. Here's what keeps you in. And that's commission and surrender. So the Lord Jesus looks at Peter and asks him this question. Simon Peter, he says, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? (laughs) Commentators have argued for ages about what the these are. Are the these the fish? Are the these the other disciples? Are the these some abstract designation of something that only the Lord and him understood? You say, preacher, what's your opinion? My opinion is... If you're arguing about that, you've missed the whole point of the question in the first place. (laughs) The whole point of the question is it don't matter what the these are. The emphasis is not the these. The emphasis is me more. Do you love me more, Peter? Here's what he needed. He needed a singular priority. You know, we often get out because we take all those irons that should be at the feet of Jesus and put them in other fires. And you know what we need more than anything? I'm not saying you have to scale back on the activity of your life. I'm saying you need to place that activity that is most important, most important. Listen, Martha, Martha, thou art troubled about many things. One thing is needful, Martha. Mary hath chosen that good part. I'm not saying there's not a lot of things to do. I'm saying there's one thing that's needful. Peter loved him, no doubt, but did he love him supremely? You won't, you won't be satisfied until you love him supremely. Until he's the most important thing in your life, nothing else will do. You won't be satisfied. He needed a singular priority. Number two, he needed a spiritual purpose. Three different occasions, and two of them are a little different than the first one, but he says, feed my lambs, Peter. Feed my sheep, Peter. Feed my sheep, Peter. Again, I think we can get lost in the weeds here. I've seen and read commentators argue about the distinction between the lambs and the sheep. And by the way, I think that distinction matters. I'm not saying there's no meaning behind it. I'm just saying for what I'm preaching on tonight, here's the greater truth that I find in this passage for this present hour. Is that he was saying, Peter, if you want to stay in, you need to be, you need to have something you're doing for me. Do you love me, Peter? I do love you, Lord. 
All right, if you love me, then manifest it by obeying me and by serving me. And he says it three times. You know why? I guess because he didn't listen the first time. Just like you and I don't listen the first time. He says you need purpose in your life. Idleness breeds discontentment. And discontentment breeds disobedience. We can't just be right. We also have to have a purpose. If we're idle, pretty soon we'll, we'll look to stir something up to kill our boredom. I've known people that live life that way. They're not happy unless there's an uproar. You know why? They're not doing anything. If they's doing something, they wouldn't have time for that. There was a time our society was in a lot better condition. You know why everybody was too tired after working to protest or argue? I'm saying this, there's a spiritual truth there as well. We need to be expending spiritual energy. We need to have a spiritual purpose. And then finally, there's this interesting exchange. And I'm going to mention this and be done. The Lord tells him, says, if you love me, Peter, feed my sheep. Peter says, all right, Lord, I get it. I've got it. The Lord says, but do you? Because here's what it's going to mean, Peter. When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. Now, I think that's character assessment. I don't think that's just personal history. I think he was saying, Peter, you're the type of man that likes to govern his own life. And I know that about you. The Lord often would speak insightfully in people's life. He would have not, not just sight, but insight. He would look into their heart and into their life. And I think he's saying, Peter, you've lived your whole life this way. You say you love me more than anything. You say you'll feed my sheep. By the way, the Lord had fed his sheep. And it had led him as a lamb to the slaughter. It would do the same for Peter. Peter would feed the Lord's sheep. And he would wind up dying crucified upside down. That's really what he's asking. And I don't know how much of it Peter understood. And I'm not saying I'm smarter than Peter. I've got this whole King James Bible in front of me. 2,000 years of, of church history. But I don't even know that Peter understood really what was being said. And so the Lord just lays it out. Peter, I know how you are. I know who you are. And you've spent your whole life doing your own thing. He says, but when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. Now, most commentators have said that denotes the fact that he would be crucified, the stretching forth of his hands. I don't know if that's true or not. I, Peter was an old man when he died. I think it is just as likely what the Lord was saying. And this, to me, is in better keeping, I think, with the spirit of the text. That what he's saying is, by the time that you die, you're not even going to have your own faculties. You won't even be able to get up out of bed. When they take you to crucify you, Peter, they're going to have to pick you up and carry you. That's the kind of shape you're going to be in. I think if Peter thought, if the only thing being said here was crucifixion, I think Peter would have been down for it. Uh, Peter was the guy that, that pulled a sword out and cut a man's ear off in the Garden of Gethsemane. I think if he thought it meant dying a martyr's death, he had already told the Lord that he would go and die with him at Jerusalem. I don't think the notion of crucifixion would have bothered Peter. I think the notion of growing old and feeble would have bothered Peter. And the Lord's saying, that's what your life's going to look like. Notice John's little statement he makes. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. In other words, that's how God could get the most glory out of Peter's life. When he had spoken this, he saith unto him, follow me. Now, Peter could have said, okay, Lord. Yes, sir, Lord. But he wasn't quite ready for that. Verse 20, then Peter turning about. And this is what we always do when we get instructions we don't like. We always turn around and say, why can't this guy do it? <laughs> 
turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, uh, said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith unto Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Can I give you the Toby Weber interpretation of that? Hush, Peter. It's not your business what I have him do. Peter, your business is to do what I have called you to do. That's probably hard for Peter to hear. But later on, it carried him through the rest of his days. You know what he needed? He needed a submitted perspective. He needed to understand that living for the Lord sometimes means doing things we didn't ask for. Things we would have never sought for. Things that we feel not very attuned to our disposition and nature. You know why I think he was turned around looking at John, saying, what about this man? And by the way, isn't it interesting, if we look at the term, when thou art old, your hands will be stretched forth. If the notion is that Peter would live to an older age and would lose his faculties, he turns and looks at John and says, what about this man? Nobody lived longer than John. You know, sometimes the things we accuse the Lord of, we just don't have a clue what we're talking about. John lived longer than Peter did. But he turns and says, what about this man? And here's what he needed to understand. You know, Peter's great mistake throughout his life had always been taking his eyes off of Jesus. It's what he did in the storm. It's what he did at the fire. It's what he did at the crucifixion. His great mistake had always been taking his eyes off of Christ. And here's that old flesh popping up again and trying to do the same thing. The Lord and Peter are talking, eyes locked, and the Lord's giving divine instruction. And the moment something happens that's unpalatable to Peter, what does he do? He turns about and takes his eyes off of Jesus. And immediately, that that Simon, not Peter, but Simon rears up and says, what about this fellow? And here's what Jesus, I think, is communicating. I don't think he's scolding him necessarily. I think he's trying to make him understand that he would only stay the course if he kept his gaze fixed on Jesus. You know what keeps us close? is him. There's no substitute for that. There's no formula for that. There's no Bible reading plan that can displace fellowship with Him. There's no amount of discipline. Listen, I believe it takes discipline to do certain things, but it's not discipline alone. It's Jesus. It's His fellowship. It's His communion. It's Him and His presence that keeps us the way we need to be. So that's the way back. Confession and obedience. Admit what we've done wrong. Ask His forgiveness. Do what's right. It's going to take communion and fellowship. The way out is the way back in. We've got to spend time with Him. And it's going to take a commission. And it's going to take purpose in our life. We're going to have to surrender to His will and His plan. But I think if we do these things, you know, the next time you see Peter, he's standing up on the day of Pentecost, being used greatly of God. He finished out his life faithful to the Lord. And I think it's because of what he got settled that day. Let's pray together this evening. Let's bow our heads as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. You don't have to wait for the boat to reach dry land. You can jump out and swim to Him right now if He's dealing with your heart. Father, bless this invitation. May it uplift the name of the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.